Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Do you know how much alcohol you're actually drinking? 80% of us in Scotland don't. And that's why we are partnering with the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign to highlight how many units of alcohol are actually in our glass. A single measure of Scotch whisky contains one unit of alcohol. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. And the podcast starts now. Countries that use other people's currencies, like Panama, like Ecuador, like Hong Kong, they have to run a surplus. They can't borrow. In other words, you'd have a huge deficit you'd have to plug. That comes out of public services like schools and hospitals. That's why it's such a nonsense option. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources in part two of our independence referendum specials. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks very much for being with us. Already in your feed is Blair Jenkins, who was the chief executive of Yes Scotland during the independence referendum campaign leading up to the referendum in 2014. On today's podcast special, you will hear from Blair McDougall. He was the chief executive of the Better Together campaign. We'll consider the campaign's strengths and weaknesses. We'll talk about the TV debates and this man, Alistair Darling. The greater concern is the disruption that takes place and the uncertainties. He's talking about a Scottish Defence Force. Frankly, they have not set out any coherent vision of what a Scottish Defence Force would look like. And in fact, they're talking about spending rather less on it. And as for the Trident savings, you've offered to spend them ten times no, no. over. You can't, it's rather like North Sea Oil here. You can't keep spending money you haven't actually got. Hi, I'm Blair McDougall. I was chief executive of the Better Together campaign and now work around the world as a strategist. Blair, take us back. How did you end up in charge of the Better Together campaign? So it was 2012, very early 2012, I think. um, And I had been running a training academy, teaching people how to... Uh, change things within their communities. So running, you know, living wage campaigns, that sort of thing. And I think everyone knew that the uh, referendum was coming. I had been asked a few times by different people in a sort of speculative manner whether I'd be interested in in running the campaign, and had had said no, <laughs> lots and lots of times. <laughs> My wife was heavily pregnant with our first child, um, who we'd waited a very long time um, to have, and so it didn't didn't feel like the right time. Uh, for me. Um, eventually, as always happens in politics, enough people speak to you. So Jim Murphy had spoken to me, Douglas Alexander had spoken to me, Anas had spoken to me, lots of, lots of different people. And eventually, as politicians tend to do, they convince you that you are indispensable um, and uh, flatter you um, into taking taking a job. And that's that's essentially, essentially what, what happened. So it was a probably largely manufactured feeling of responsibility that I should go and do this um, for for the greater good yeah and did, did it feel like um, did it feel like a calling if I can put it like that I don't want to sound too pompous or philosophical but did it feel like a real moment actually that was just vital that you were a part of and that you could campaign for something that you believed in 
Um, yes and no. I met Alistair Darling the other day and we were saying the weird thing about um, those of us on the no side of the campaign was we won, yet for us it was not a particularly happy um, time. Um, and I think for people on the other side, it, they lost and it was the happiest time of their life. <laughs> so there was, there was always an element of, for me and I think for most of the people around the no side, issues of nationality were not really fundamental to how we looked at politics. Um, it was something that we felt it was very important that people in Scotland voted to remain part of the union for um, reasons that would impact on things that we care about, whether that's you know, unemployment or poverty, the funding of public services, things like that. But those issues of nationality were not you know, at the core of why any of us were in politics. It was a strange experience to go into something that was so all-consuming without it being something that, as you put it, that would be, you know, a calling or something which, you know, you'd waited your whole life to do. That said, there was a real sense, and, and how old was I? I was, I was sort of early, early 30s. There was a sense that this was a huge, you know, political moment um, on a professional level, a, you know, an incredible opportunity to be part of um, something like that. I suppose the conventional wisdom also is that Election campaigns, democratic processes are easier to fight when you can shout loudly about changing things. And I just wonder if yes. if that felt like a difficult starting point because it, it was, you know, almost by definition, let's keep things roughly the same. Yeah, so I, I think both campaigns were fighting a, a fairly similar strategic landscape in that sense where... Um, the yes side, as you say, you know, just being yes, just having having the change proposition, were able to offer change, but they had to also offer continuity in order to reassure people. Whereas for us, we were very clearly offering uh, continuity, a sense of security, the kind of positive emotions around that, um, but we had to neutralise that sense of not offering change and offering offering the status quo. So I think the the two campaigns were in that sense, mirrors of each other. I remember the first uh, piece of research we did uh, were some focus groups, which the, the late, great Margaret McDonough, who recent, recently passed away, um, had done for us. And one of the key findings from that was exactly that, was the, the sense that the side of the contest who could offer both continuity and change would be the side that the side that won, mm. um, and so that kind of that kind of architecture of the contest, I think, was was pretty clear um, from very early on. Can you remember sort of even early meetings, early strategic discussions? I'm always fascinated to try to get in the room because one of the things about the Better Together campaign, I suppose, is that it it had to pull together probably more uh, politically different people than the other side as well. It was kind of because it was that amalgamation of different political parties, whereas while the Yes campaign was prided itself on being not political, clearly there's a huge political party backing to what they're doing. And I'm just wondering how, how you bring those people together, actually, in, in the interest of a common purpose. But, but that must be really quite difficult. Uh, it was it was incredibly difficult on lots of levels. Um, the uh, like all campaigns, there's there's sort of a an official management structure and then a kind of shadow management structure. Shadow sounds too 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 sinister. It's uh, on a on a professional level and on a on a democratic level is maybe a better way to describe it. Um, and I think on the on the democratic level, in terms of um, how the three parties came together. The impact of that for the people running the campaign was that, for example, for me, there were probably about 20 different people who thought they were my boss. Um, so when you're running a campaign, that can mean you either spend all of your time on internal diplomacy and trying to keep people happy, um, or you come to peace with the fact that you're going to be unpopular with a section of a section of your own internal um, internal audience. And and I, I think for half of the campaign, I, I did the former, and then eventually realised that the latter was the only the only kind of responsible thing thing to do. I think where it worked best was on the level of you know advisors and strategists. So um, myself, Andrew Dunlop, Andrew Cooper. 
as sort of everyday people who are working on strategy, I think we all worked very well together. I think the thing that probably made that more productive at that level was as individuals, we were more sort of directly connected to the consequences of what would happen if we if we lost. If you're Andrew Dunlop working for the Prime Minister, you know that if you um, lose Scotland, you're probably going to be resigning along with your Prime Minister. If you are me, and the first large campaign that you've run is one that ends up in the dissolution of the United Kingdom, you're probably not going to be, um, you know, invited to run lots of other campaigns the rest of your life. So, so that, that, that sense of kind of personal responsibility at that, that level of strategists, I think, made us, made us work pretty well together. I think the other thing that made the relationships difficult internally, um, and it's actually, I think, related to one of the reasons we won, is that there were a, there was a large part of our internal coalition who wished that they could have run a campaign which was about shared British identity, whether that was sort of shared British identity in a very sort of you know flag waving land of hope and glory patriotic type way, or whether that was in a kind of you know class solidarity across the the, the you know the working people of 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 the UK, and the fact was we were having this referendum because those bonds of shared identity and, and shared solidarity had been weakened. All of our research suggested that had we spent the, the sort of two and a half years of the campaign telling a story about identity and shared bonds and things like that, that, that um, it wouldn't have worked. And so I think part of the tension there was that we were very consciously, very deliberately running a campaign which was not designed to make our internal coalition feel happy. <laughs> it was designed to reach those people who felt differently from us, who didn't have the same level of, of faith um, in, in, in those, those kind of shared bonds and connections across, across the United Kingdom. And I think much in the way, you know, if you look at Keir Starmer's campaign that he's running at the moment, I mean, I, th I think a, a mark of a good campaign is whether you are running it to try to make the voters that count feel good about you or whether you're running it to try and make yourself feel good about you. And so I think I think some of that externally expressed sort of friendly fire about, you know, where we where we too prosaic, where we too focused on the economy. That was actually for me a kind of mark of of that we were focusing on the right things. We weren't just talking talking to ourselves in a language that made us feel good about ourselves. Yeah. I'm I'm struck by twenty people thinking they were your boss. I'm trying to work out who the twenty people might be, but immediately my 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 imagination goes to the fact that there are there are also UK party leaders, as it were, and Scottish party leaders, as it were, yeah. again all aiming at the same thing. So I mean that's probably at least six of your <laughs> six of your twenty. But trying to navigate, I don't want to say branches because it's such a loaded term, but you know what I mean. Trying to navigate yeah. the leaders of 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 all the sections of all the parties must have been a blooming nightmare, frankly. It was, um, and, uh, and um, at different times, those relationships would would fray to breaking point. You know, I think occasionally, um, I'm sure there were discussions about, you know, is this guy the right guy to run run the campaign, and you know, should we bring in someone else, and 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 that sort of thing. I think ultimately, what protected me and the campaign team from the, the you know the kind of internal disintegration that you often see in campaigns was that our strategy was well evidenced. Mm. I mean, we spent an awful lot of time and money on voter research to say, look, you know, we are not doing these things which maybe maybe irritate you. We're not doing these things that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, without there being a sound strategic reason. Uh, behind it. But certainly I think you had tensions between um, the UK parties and the Scottish parties, not least with the, you know, the, the parliamentary parties in, in both Holyrood and Westminster. You had tensions just in terms of political style, you know, so the Liberal Democrats, for example, they are I now have some friends who are Liberal Democrats, so they hope they'll forgive me, but they're quite a kind of touchy-feely, you know, gentle sort of party, often in terms of the way they approach politics. And so 
Um, you know, the kind of relentless focus on the economy to them felt a little bit um, uncomfortable. But there are people in other parties who, for whom, you know, I, I still, you know, I'm sure I have very little in common uh, with them who, uh, you know, I felt were incredibly professional, uh, supportive and serious in that period. You know, so pe- people like Ruth Davidson, you know, as I say, I don't think I share a lot of her, a lot of her politics, but as a working relationship, I found her great throughout that period. Under the surface of all of the the stresses which the Yes campaign tried to exploit, you know, they tried to, you know, talk a lot about, oh, Labour and the Tories working hand in hand and things like that. There was also a strength there, I think, of the voters seeing people who were, you know, fundamentally opposed to each other in lots of ways, putting aside differences and working together. And that, as much as it was, it was a negative and certainly negative in terms of, um, you know, the post-referendum landscape, in the moment, I think it was seen as much as a positive from people to just see people, people who were, you know, had differences working together. I find that really interesting because nowadays there is such a common call for more collaboration to address some of the biggest problems in society. There has been such division over Mm. the last however many years, but certainly in the last 10 years, since the referendum, Brexit, politics in general. And I just wonder if we're coming full circle and people are saying, do you know what? Get things done. And I don't care if you're working with the other side. Get it done. In fact, that would be advantageous. Yeah, and I think it's, I think partly in the last, you mentioned the last 10 years, I think a lot of that is a social media age where politics becomes, for a a whole generation, about performing for an audience who already agree with you rather than trying to persuade people who don't. Um, And I remember the first first meeting I had with with any uh, Tories during the, the referendum campaign they asked me the question, how do you feel about working with Tories? And, and I said, well, I look forward to the day after the referendum, uh, working to, you know, grind you all into the dust and make you historical <laughs> irrelevant. However, um, I said to them, I come from a, a political tradition within the Labour Party that seeks converts rather than traitors. And I think any political campaign uh, to be successful has to be able to inhabit the minds of people who who don't don't agree with you. You have to be able to understand the people who don't yet uh, agree with you. And maybe actually, in a way, the fact that this was a campaign of of three parties who fundamentally and on lots of issues disagreed with each other, that sort of injected into our the sort of DNA of our campaign that ability to put yourself in a position where you were trying to understand other people, where you weren't just talking talking to yourself because, you know, every day every day you were having to do that with your with your colleagues. So it was it was already your mindset, so it became easier to inhabit the mind of an undecided voter um, or a soft yes voter. Who do you think was the strongest public performer for the Better Together campaign? Uh, Alistair. Alistair, Alistair Darling embodied the seriousness of the moment that we were trying to communicate to voters. And I think in the the first television debate, I think you saw that in, in spades, that he was able to be the voice of, of the anxiety that people felt about this huge, historic, irreversible decision that they had to make. And so I thought he was the, just that, that kind of sober, calm seriousness. He was, he was the sort of yeah, walking embodiment of the way that we wanted to frame the entire choice that people needed to make. All of us who live here are proud of Scotland. Of course we are. I want Scotland to prosper, we all do. But it is not our patriotism that is at stake tonight. Rather, it's something bigger than that, and that's the future of our country, the future for our children and our grandchildren. And it isn't just for politicians, it's for all of us. And you know, there are times that for the love of our family and the love of our country, it's sometimes best to say no, not because we can't, but simply because it is not the best thing to do. Now, in six weeks' time, we will make the biggest decision that we've ever made here in Scotland. And remember this, if we decide to leave, there is no going back. There's no second chance. 
One thing we can say with absolute certainty, when Scotland comes, becomes independent, then in every single election we will get the government that Scotland votes for. We can say that with absolute certainty. Every time Scotland goes into a general election, we have the risk of having people we didn't vote for ruling over us. When it comes to voting government, getting governments you didn't vote for, I didn't vote for him, but I'm stuck with him. I just accept that's what happens in a democracy. Uh, if, there's a, if there's a no vote, if there's a no vote, we have had this declaration today from the leaders of the UK parties, there will definitely be more powers accruing to Scotland. Give me two powers that will definitely accrue. Both tax and increased power over Which housing benefit with income tax. All of it? Income tax, the power to, All power, of it? to, to power to there's two things happening. There is power already coming, so you've got power on income tax, and on top of that, they will have additional power uh, to, to vary the rate of income tax. So yes, there are substantial powers, responsibility over nearly forty percent of what the Scottish Government spends. And I think that is a major step forward. But as I say, it maintains the fact we have a Scottish Parliament, but we also have the advantages, the opportunities and security that come from being part of the United Kingdom and we don't take on a whole bunch of risks. So the Better Together team for most of the, t most of the period of the, the campaign um, was only, you know, sort of six, seven or eight people. Myself, uh, Rob and David, who were the communications team, um, uh, Gordon Aikman, who I think we all know from uh, when he passed away from motor neuron disease after the campaign, um, and uh, Nigel Anthony and his team just relentlessly finding new ways to go back to our core arguments around the economy, around currency and things like that. Victoria, Rob and Kate, um, just making sure that the whole machine worked, that we constantly had those, those experts, those endorsers, those people. Um, and I, I think the thing that's, that, that, that's perhaps not well understood is just how difficult it is in a campaign like, like the referendum on independence, where it covered absolutely everything. I'd often be in the, the, the office till three or four in the, in the morning. I'd read all the papers online overnight. On a single day, you might have um, you know, a story about defence, about mortgages, about the BBC and broadcasting, about whether your granny would still be able to visit and get over the border. You know? And so when you have this sort of smorgasbord of, of different issues, the, the, the difficult thing is keeping it focused on your core you know, economic argument. And I remember at the end of the campaign going back and looking in our press release file and searching for the word currency, and there were sort of 300 press releases came up. And the ability to do that, the ability day after day to keep that strategic focus, not to be distracted by all of these sort of shiny new narratives and new stories that are, that are coming up every day, that was down to that small team. That was down to that team's, you know, ability to ride things out. On currency, uh, just as an example, did it become clear as the campaign went on that there were, there were sort of sweet spots that you could keep hitting that you felt like the other side perhaps were struggling to push back on and were, and were having cut through? Because it strikes me that in that, when you, as you yep. say, you're covering every issue, you know, every day it's going round and round and round. It's difficult actually to, to get everything to cut through. But currency is one that to this day has cut through. Yeah, so strangely enough, um, current, currency, well, I think, was a, was a creation of the campaign rather than the campaign exploiting something that people already felt. We knew from our research that people had a very strong sense that leaving the United Kingdom was an economic risk, but they found it difficult to pinpoint um, a tangible example of, of what that was. And it was clear from just looking at, if you, if you like, almost the, the, the body language of the, the Yes campaign, that they had a level of discomfort around currency. They were so keen to sort of cauterize that. And so they almost kind of gave us the signal that that was the, the, place, to, the place to go to. The other thing about it, and I think, I think it's, the, it's the one um, strategic lesson that the Yes campaign seems to have learned since 20, 2012 
is that it handed a, a, a veto to their opponents on the, one of the core economic offers of yes, because they were saying, we will keep the pound. And the first question from every journalist was, well, that's not in your gift. So you were handing a veto over your own economic argument to, to the other side. And obviously that came to, to fruition when the the three potential you know, chancellors together, Ed Balls, Daniel Alexander and George Osborne, came together to say, well, actually, we, we wouldn't agree um, to that. You ask about what what were the, the, the sort of sweet spots, the... Um, the bruises to punch, which which we saw on uh, on the yes side, they had a really neat articulation of their their strategy, which I think I think was was smart and, and and broadly correct. Was they had this journey that they wanted to take voters through, which was that Scotland can be an independent country, should be an independent country, and must be. Um, and so the kind of the kind of journey there was to say to people, look, we can reassure we reassure people on the economic viability of Scotland. Then we can talk about all of the lovely things we can deliver with uh, the full powers of independence. But we can also then have permission to talk about how, how awful these terrible, terrible Tories in Westminster are. But there was something in the way that was articulated which, which was interesting. They viewed that question of Scotland can be an independent country as a stage to get through so that they could talk about the things they wanted to talk about. The problem for them was that question of whether you would be economically better off or worse off for those undecided voters, that was the whole question. It wasn't something to get through. It wasn't a stage um, of, of getting to the real question of the campaign. It was the question of the campaign. They constantly briefed that they were going to have you know, especially around the white paper, a moment where you stop talking about the how of independence and talk about, you know, the what of independence. And actually those questions of how, those economic questions, they were what the question was for those voters in the middle. So um, that sort of, I think, revealed something about the way they looked at the whole, the whole contest. And I think spoke of how they were just psychologically, I think, coming coming at the whole contest from a different place from the voters that they needed to win over. You're listening to a Holyrood Sources special as we speak to Blair McDougall, who was chief executive of the Better Together campaign in the run-up to the 2014 independence referendum. Still to come, more on the TV debates. And would Blair ever take part in a campaign like this ever again? Stay with us. This is Holyrood Sources. 
Scotch whisky. It's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whiskey.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. When you look at uh, political party leaders today, at Holyrood and at Westminster as well, do you think that these are a, a cohort, that they could be a coalition that could prove again that Scotland is better together should that time come? Now, I realise these leaders may change before any referendum, second referendum was to happen, but let's just consider who exists yeah. right now. Do you think they could make that argument? Um, in the next year, no. In the next year before the, the general election, no. I think the Conservatives pre-2014 um, understood the need to box clever. They understood the need not to be the villain um, that the SNP wanted them to be. And that lesson, I think, has been unlearned. I don't think necessarily in the, the corridors of the, the Scottish uh, Conservative Party, but I uh, certainly think in the corridors of Number 10, that, that lesson seems to have been completely, completely lost. The Labour Party, there's a feeling, I, I, I think, abroad in, uh, within the SNP, a sort of worry that they may have missed their moment. I think at the moment... We have, uh, you know, one UK-wide Labour politician in the, the the shape of Ian Murray. I think we have a, a group now, a small group of of, of people within um, Hollywood who would be, you can imagine, being sort of lead lead people within a referendum campaign. But within within a year's time, there will be a whole cohort of new Labour voices, younger people, and um, lots of lots of Labour's candidates. I think will you know be really excellent uh, spokespeople. It's underestimated just how difficult it is to to run a campaign, to dominate the media, to be a, a you know an ever an ever present um, sort of force in politics without having those spokespeople. And so I think I think the, the political parties post the referendum, um, you know, within within a couple of years, I think we're in a we're in a, a state where they wouldn't have been able to win um, a referendum. Um, I think before too long, uh, we'll be back in a situation where they are in a in a sort of fighting fit state. Ironically, at the point where you know a referendum becomes um, arguably uh, or another referendum becomes arguably far less likely. Mm. Do you think the, the campaign would be the same? Would it be fought on those same issues? You said the economy, which, you know, is central, still feels mm -hmm. central, cost of living crisis right now. I just wonder if, if that's the same, if that would end up being the same battleground in a, in a second referendum. Again, acknowledging that between now and any potential second referendum, lots can change. But as we look at this now... Um, so I think the battleground would still be economic, but I think I think the, the campaign would look totally different. If the campaign was held anytime soon, you would need to have a campaign which was comfortable using Brexit as a cautionary tale, um, and that I think leads you to um, it leads you to a very different type of campaign structure. I think it leads you to a campaign which is much more about bringing together people from civil society. Yes, probably still around a political a political core who know how to to you know run campaigns, do debates, and and, and things like that. Um, but I think I think the economic um, uh, argument becomes quite different. I think on the other side, the economic argument is is it would be transformed as well, where the continuity that um, still being part of the EU offered the yes side. And um, if you look back at you know for example Nicola Sturgeon in economic debates, she would constantly lean on the EU to say, well look nothing would change, you know the trade would would continue, and so that framework of continuity that helped helped the the nationalist side. Has gone to. I think one of the, one of the things that would be different that 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 has sort of largely largely gone unnoticed, and it's a challenge for both sides, is the enormous amount of power that Hollywood now has. So, if you think of all of the retail offer um, on the yes side, you know, on childcare, on things like that. Um, uh, the Scottish government have actually delivered much of what the independence offer was um, within the United Kingdom. Um, so, if you are going forward as a nationalist in, a, in another referendum campaign, the thing you would hear again and again is, "Well, you've got the power to do that now." The flip side of that, for the pro-union side, is that the remaining things which could be devolved, most of those 
are things which people would prefer to have as part of the United Kingdom. So people, generally speaking, don't want pensions across the UK to be to be dismantled, for example. They don't want defence to be dismantled. They don't want foreign affairs or whatever to be to be dismantled in that way. So that, that presents a challenge for the no side to talk about um, yes, the things that could still be devolved, so you know, something on you know immigration or or whatever, but you have to actually tell a stronger story about the powers that are actually there. Um, and I think opinion polls again and again show that people I think don't don't uh, fully grasp the scale of the the powers that have been devolved to Hollywood. So I think on the economic argument things are different. I think on that that argument about change in power, I think things are very different as well because. It, it closes the window for uh, identifying a grievance if you, the other side can say, well, hang on, you can you could do this now. You could change this with the powers that already rest in, in Edinburgh. Mm, really interesting. Uh, a couple more on, the, on, on back then, on 2014. Um, first of all, the poll. I imagine you immediately know which one I'm talking about. The 7th of September, a poll by YouGov for the Sunday Times which suggested a lead for the yes vote for the first time. Um, now, the yes side suggests that their internal polls were suggesting there was a lead for a couple of weeks before that, but this was the first kind of public one. Um, don't give me a rose-tinted retrospective on this one, Blair. When you saw that poll in the Sunday Times on the 7th of September, what was it like in the Better Together campaign? Well, we, we knew it was coming. We'd hypothesised for a long time that... Um, there were head head undecided voters and heart undecided voters, and the 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 head undecided voters would make their mind up as they walked into the polling station, and the the heart voters would 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 make up their mind earlier. So we expected a movement for yes in the polls. The evening that that poll came out. My son was born sort of short shortly. My second second child, uh, Gus, was born just before the referendum. And so I was sort of ju- jumping back in a taxi to go to go home to the city of Glasgow to do bath time and then getting in a taxi back to the back to the office. And we had we had a, a conference call with all the staff just to say, look, you know, we, we knew this was coming, you know, here are the messages we're gonna we're gonna use over the next few days um, in response to this. And I left my phone in the first taxi um, as I was going home. And when I got into the next taxi um, was when the call should have been. And I, I realised then I didn't have my phone and I had no way of, of, of phoning people. So I think that added to a sense of, of unease that suddenly the, the, you know, the, the meeting that was supposed to be dealing with this thing was, um, uh, was just an empty, empty voice on the end of a line. Um, what what it did do, I I, rem, I remember the when the markets opened and there was this crazy day where we were being phoned by you know financial journalists with you know figures about how many billion pounds had been wiped off of the balance sheet of Scottish companies that day I, I remember I remember coming off a telephone call about that with the communications team and just saying to them we're we're playing with live ammunition here guys mm. you know this is a this is absolutely real and I think that sense in many ways retrospectively I didn't feel like it at the time it was the best thing that could have happened because something which became um, something that had been a hypothetical for lots of voters it had been a cost free protest vote you know you could vote you could vote yes even if you weren't entirely sure about independence just as a way of sticking it to the Tories or you know expressing discomfort about or unhappiness about whatever it was you were unhappy with in your life suddenly it became real Mm -hmm. Uh, and our messaging over the next the next um, sort of week or so was was very much around you know you cannot afford a protest vote this is this is real and I think that that sort of sobering moment um, in many ways was, was kind of I wouldn't pretend it was part of some grand strategy, but it, but it was, you know, retrospectively, it was, was a very helpful moment. Yeah. Tell you what else must have been a really helpful moment was the vow on the, uh, on the 16th of September, when the Daily Record published the vow. Uh, David Cameron, uh, Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg, the ultimate, the holy trinity, um, pledging to uh, give new powers to the Scottish Parliament. Um, was that a mistake? I'm, I'm always, I'm so interested in the kind of, the look back on this, because it is something like currency, I think, that still cuts through today, is the vow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder how you feel about that. 
think it's important to say the vow and the the idea of this being a kind of grand promise made on sepia tinged scrolls that was that was the invention of Murray Foot rather than our rather than ourselves um Murray Foot obviously now SNP um, chief executive and in a way I think the framing of that is unhelpful because it is it's inviting people to to answer the question, do you believe a promise from politicians? And the answer to that is, well, of course we don't. You know, people people don't believe politicians. So I think I think by setting that, it's also setting up setting up with that framing has allowed nationalists to paint it as the the sort of, you know, the stab in the back betrayal kind of story that, that explains why why they lost. I think the truth is the the, the, the vow was an extension of, of messaging um that we had we'd been using all the way through, but it was the seriousness of the moment finally knocking heads together to get people to come together in a more a more clear way that evidenced that the, the 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 sort of two sides of the message that we were saying, you know, the best of both worlds being, uh, you know, economic security plus you know more decision making in Scotland. It, it for the first time I think seriously evidenced the the the, the other side of that um, that equation. Um, I don't think it was a moment that moved a lot of voters. Um, I think in the polling that was done immediately after the referendum, you know, you were into decimal points of voters who said that it was a you know a um a significant moment in their decision making where it was useful was as a reset moment um in our campaign it was a period where there was a feeling of 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 yes momentum they were getting some traction around their nhs narrative um uh, and so it was a big it was a big moment that allowed us to reset the narrative and, and continue to have the conversation that we wanted to have. So I, I think of it as a as a framing moment more than as a kind of policy moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. The, the debates around the independence referendum fascinate me because I still feel like it was a time where televised debates with public figures, politicians, leaders, whatever, was really quite a new thing in, for many people. Um, mm. I also remember being a researcher on BBC Scotland for Salmond versus Darling at Kelvin Grove in Glasgow and actually being, being assigned a job that would have kept me away from the main hall. And I said, mm, stuff that. So I did it for 10 minutes, then went and stood at the side of the stage to watch the debate happening. So apologies to my BBC bosses at the time, but I was not doing what you'd asked me to. Uh, and then the other part of that that I remember was the real, probably having worked on on, the, on that TV show and indeed on others, um, it was the, the real concern about the volume of the audience and whether the audience were kind of biased or not and the accusations and allegations. And actually what we discovered was if you mix up an audience, i.e. do not have them segregated into yes, no, undecided, they will be quieter, they'll be better behaved. But actually when you pack people into a section of yes and no and undecided, yes. that's when you get volume. How did you find the debates, Blair? Because as I said, I feel like they were kind of a new, a relatively new phenomenon um, and, and became such a focal point for obvious reasons. So I think I think we, we you were right, they were, they were still new in politics. We had two... Um, sort of points of learning that we drew on. One was talking to the people who'd been involved in the in negotiations um, uh, for the three main political parties in the UK for the first um, uh, TV debates um, that had taken place in 2010. So we had a sense of, well, what are, what are the things you should worry about? You know, right down to things like... Um, what what side of the stage does your guy enter from so that you're either the open body handshake rather than the reaching over um, handshake um, uh, that supposedly makes you more powerful. So all of those little details had come from a lot of the learning that the three parties had had around the, the negotiations around the, the 2010 debates. Um, the other people we spoke to were the, the people who um, worked on Obama's um, uh, debate preparation. Um, and that was useful in terms of lots of lots of things about preparing for the performance. It was useful in terms of their advice on how do you, in a, in a debate that's maybe closer than you would like, do you tell a story about who won in a convincing way and, 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 and things like that. Um, 
But the thing they spoke about over and over again, um, and you read about in political biographies in, in, in America over and over again, is that the person who wins the first debate never wins the second debate. And we had that really strongly uh, in our head. Um, and the idea is, you know, if you win in the first debate, it's probably because you've used your best ammunition. Um, you have poured all of your anxiety and it's become into that pre preparation and it's become adrenaline and it's, it's, it's spurred you on to, to succeed. And if you win, all of that disappears and it transfers over to the person who lost. The person who lost puts all of their heart and soul into winning. And we were so determined that that wouldn't happen to us. And it did. It did. I mean, Alistair, Alistair did brilliantly. Um, but you could tell in the preparation of the second debate, there was just a difference in the feeling and the energy uh, there. Um, uh, uh, and when we... When we prepared for the first debate, you know, we had people who were experts in how to be essentially a television presenter. You know, here are the tricks that television presenters who look down the lens of a camera use. Here's how they carry themselves. It was it was essentially essentially preparing Alistair in that way. Um, Paul Sinclair, who was uh, Joanne Lamont's special advisor, played Alex Salmond and was a better Alex Salmond than Alex Salmond was. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, but as I say, once you've won a debate and once you have that feeling, it just it, it, it's fascinating how the energy just sort of sort of sucks out of your your preparation. And I remember going going to the Kelvin Grove for the second debate, um, and Alex was surrounded by different personnel. The people who were with him for the first debate were no longer there. People from outside the campaign uh, were with him, and you just thought, oh, okay, right, he is. Um, he has learned the lessons of the first debate. Um, he's taking this more seriously. I think he sort of he turned up for the first debate in full salmon kind of arrogance, um, and I think was humbled. And, and as a result, he probably performed better in the in the second debate. As a result, would you ever do it again? Would you ever campaign uh, in that sort of capacity? I suppose there are other ways in which you might be involved in in a campaign of this sort. Should there be a second referendum? Um, but in hindsight, was it? I mean, it sounds relentless. It sounds like it was absolutely relentless for you. The answer is no. I have done my shift. Um, it was. It was relentless. It was. Um, Alistair and I, when we met the other day, just talking about how you know we think we think back and on that, those two and a half years as a sort of moment of trauma, mm. <laughs> um, uh, albeit one one that had a triumph at, at, at the end of it. Um, it was relentless. It was um, unforgiving. Um, and I remember walking down um, the street in central Glasgow a few months later, and a guy who had a uh, SMP badge and a big foam SMP hand, because there was an, an SMP event happening in town. I had my, my daughter on my shoulders. Um, and he spat at me and called me the C-word um, uh, while I had my daughter on my shoulder. So, you know, there is a, there is a personal cost to um, placing yourself in the middle of a binary contest, which is about, you know, strongly felt um, identity. Um, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't relish um, uh, doing it again. That said, I'm incredibly proud that in a period of world political history where almost every other time countries around the world were asked in that period to endorse a populist nationalist proposition. We were the only country in the world that said no thanks um, in that period and I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud um, of that. But no, I have done my shift. <laughs> fair. Absolutely fair. Do you think there will be a second independence referendum? No. Ever? I don't because I, who, who, who knows who knows what happens in you know generations to come um, I don't think there will be one anytime soon um, because I I think the fundamental barrier to it happening is that for a decade nearly a decade the SNP have shown a complete lack of interest in understanding why they lost 10 years on from them publishing their their original uh, proposition, um, on this on this podcast, Hamza Yusuf asked the question, what currency will we use? 
and he says we'll keep the pound. You know, they are not serious about their own proposition. They should have spent the last few years trying to talk to people um, about the case for um, a, a, a form of independence which involved deeper and greater change than a lot of voters are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. It meant moving on from that argument in 2014 where they were trying to offer both change and continuity by acknowledging that now they can't really offer that continuity. And that takes a long time to get people comfortable with that that, that, that idea of you know, a border of, um, you know, a border for, for trade goods, of changing currency, whatever it is. Um, I think they have a fundamental lack of confidence in their own belief. They're not willing to make the case for their own nationalism. Um, and so, quite aside from any questions about where the polls are or where the voters might move to or whether the UK government would allow it, fundamentally, the SNP, I don't think, are serious um, about fighting another referendum anytime soon. And that's the thing um, I think that will prevent one from happening. Those then the thoughts of Blair McDougall, who was the chief executive of the Better Together campaign during the 2014 independence referendum campaign. What do you think? Email us, hello at hollyroodsources.com. And if you're very quick, then you can get your email in time for us to read it out on Wednesday's usual episode, which will have an independence focus. Jeff and Andy will thankfully be back to ask actually intelligent questions. And we'll be joined by Stephen Noon, former strategist for Yes Scotland and one-time policy advisor to Alex Salmond, and also Joanne Lamont, who was the leader of Scottish Labour during the independence referendum. Make sure you follow the podcast or subscribe. You can follow for free or you can subscribe for $4.99 a month. That makes your listening experience ad-free. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Acast. Whatever you do, make sure you stick around. There's lots more to come and we'll speak to you again very soon. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.